what do you think has made you successful as a community manager? Like what kind of personality traits or what kind of lessons have you learned that you can share with people? If somebody gives me a guidebook of like, hey, like this, this is how like the successful community managers do it. Like you should, you know, stick close to these people or like listen to them. I learn best off of kind of like repeating somebody else's behaviors, like in the community manager role, I think for about like seven months now, I'm starting to be like, okay, now I need to create my own tasks that people need to start doing as well. It's like, okay, what works best for them and what works best for me? And then like combining both of them at the same time to make it just sufficient. So I'm just really good at that. I'm also just really good at like listening to people at the end of the day, like a lot of people just want to be heard sometimes like issues that they have in their homes but as long as we're hearing them and like actually doing something about an issue that they have i think that's all that really matters i am also a crazy email person i don't leave any email unread or unanswered and i will try to get it down to zero well what sort of like things should people really pay attention to to make sure that they don't fail their inspection you basically want it to be like what would you be giving it to your new resident that's the condition you want the inspector to see you truly want to make sure it's moving ready and that you have everything up to date you might be required to have additional paperwork on site for them to verify certain things i think it's just really going to depend where you're doing it so you truly have to master the process. And like, if you know the process and you know who to contact and are able to get in contact with, there really shouldn't be any issue. And if you don't know the process, hire somebody that does. Okay. Welcome to an episode of Affordable Housing and Real Estate Investing. Today, I got a treat for all of you guys today. Um, we're bringing on Gabby today, who has... When I met, when I met with Gabby, she's had extensive, extensive experience in the property management space, especially when it comes to luxury high rises, but there's also mixed income opportunities, specifically around voucher holders. So she's going to bring on a wealth of experience in this space. And I can't wait to get into this conversation. So Gabby, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. How are you? I am fantastic. Like I told you, Gabby, before we started this, I was stoked for this conversation. When I first talked to you and I remember meeting you and Gabe and hearing your stories of your families and the things that yeah. they had to go through and the hardship they had to go through, I was really touched. But more importantly, I was inspired. So I really am so happy that you came onto this podcast because I think a lot of people can be inspired by what Gabe is doing, what you're doing, and all the hardships that your family has overcome. So let, let's just back it up a little bit let's contain my excitement a little bit tell us a little bit more about yourself and how did you even get into this world of real estate yeah of course so my name is gabby i'm a property manager at a community out here in boston um i actually got into this industry by mistake um it, technically i knew i was always going to own property and like i had to figure out how to manage it um but i had no idea or how, how I was going to get there, how I was going to do it. Um, four and a half years ago, I was actually still a server. Um, and we had gotten an increase at our first place that we moved in together. And it was a ridiculous amount. So we're like, okay, let's start looking at a different apartment. And we went to so many different places. Um, 
and we actually um, went to one place that was literally down the street on the beach. Um, and the leasing consultant there, like, he was so friendly and so nice. And we got close because we had gone to this apartment building, I think, six or seven times to tour apartments or see what would be coming up for the time frame we were looking at. And I remember him talking to me and Gabe, like my husband, he was like, you know, like you guys would be really do really well in this industry. Like you could always apply. And like, I think that just set something off like in my head. So I'm like, Oh, like maybe I can go into property management. Um, granted at the time I had no real estate license, no experience, no real estate that we own, but I was like, yeah, why not? You know, what's the worst that can happen? So I applied for a few different places. I got turned down like immediately by some because I didn't have a college degree because I uh, dropped out. Um, and then after I think the third application that I put in, um, I had an over the phone um, interview and that went really well. Um, and then I had an in-person interview and I remember the person who had hired me at the time, um, he asked me, he was like, hey, like, what makes you think you're going to stay in this industry? You know, like you've worked selling knives, you worked at a trampoline park. Don't really seem like the candidate who like wants to be in the real estate game. And I had told him, I was like, hey, like, this is truly what I want to do. I know I'm going to own property. I just don't know when or how now, but like, I know I'd be like, you know, an asset to you and your company. And then I got hired. Um, I started off as a leasing consultant, which my first year I was very horrible at. Um, I did not lease that many apartments. I was like very shy, not as confident. And then it really took like the second year um, I took off and I was probably in the top 15 um, leasing consultants in Boston. Um, and this was like leasing apartments mid pandemic, no one being on site, just doing everything virtually and assisting everyone. Um, so I did that for about two and a half years. And there was a new building that was coming up at the time. And I was like, you know what? I want to be at that new building. It looks so luxury. I want to be there. Um, and I waited until the perfect opportunity and I applied and I became the assistant community manager over there. Um, and then after working there and going through its ups and downs of a lease up, um, I saw my opportunity at the first place that I worked at to be, um, to apply for a community manager role. And that's what I went. I went for, and I basically back at my home base. <laughs> Wow, Gabby, that was yeah. like so inspirational. And and to think it was just four and a half years ago. And I hope the audience listening to right now really takes away a couple of things like, hey, anybody can do this. But on top of that, if you ever thought about getting into real estate, specifically, I imagine people that are listening right now, they want to be in affordable housing, they want to do good. But they also understand that when you underwrite deals, you are putting in assumptions to meet certain numbers to get your return for your investment. Yeah. But a property manager, and most importantly, the people that are on the ground floor that are executing every day for the building, for the apartments, that is very critical. Like without a team like yourself, Gabby, that you're leading, these investors would have never been able to achieve any of the numbers are there. So you went in there and you literally took on 
probably in my opinion, one of the hardest roles in real estate. <laughs> and you're like, Hey, I'm gonna do this anyways. Cause I know I'm going to own some real estate. Like yeah. what, what other, cause there's going to be people listening to you right now, Gabby. And they're like, Oh no, I don't, I don't think I can do it. Like what, what is your advice for them thinking about like, if they're hesitating, like what, yeah. what kind of fears did you have and how did you get over those fears? I mean, I definitely, at the time, I didn't think I was that smart. So I was like, hey, like, you know, I dropped out of school, not because I didn't want to, but I was in a marketing class. And I remember um, our professor was like, hey, like, you know, you really got to buy spots in a magazine for ads or like billboards. And at the time, we we actually had a social media marketing agency that we were doing, like, part-time um, me and Gabe and we were getting money off of that and we we're like why are we paying to go to school to listen to some person tell us that we need to buy billboards and magazine ads when that doesn't like apply to today's time so with that in mind we dropped out which was a good course um, but you know life hit us in a way where like you know we had to work harder we bills weren't going to stop. And we had actually moved in together, like right after dropping out, like maybe like six, seven months. Um, So life was definitely not stopping. So I, when getting into property management at first, I was like, Hey, like, you know, maybe I'm not the smartest. I dropped out. Like all these people around me, you know, most of them have college degrees. They seem the way that they articulate themselves seems a lot smarter than the way I do. Um, Sometimes I have a little bit of a hard time being um, bilingual. Sometimes my English doesn't come out as perfect or as articulate as other people's. Um, But then I kind of realized that there's like, granted, everyone has like their abilities of what they can and can't do. But the only thing that stops them is like their attitude because all most of the people that you know are very successful really don't have much in the beginning they just like learn to build on what they have and continue growing so i started realizing like there's nothing that somebody else can do that i can't do unless i don't want to do it then i will definitely not do it but if i want something and i know i can go after it then like i will do it and i'll get it done just you know, however long it takes, but you got to really want it. Um, if you don't really want it, then it's it's not going to happen. You'll continue to make excuses like, hey, like, you know, I'm so tired. Work is busy. Like, I get it. I do the nine to five and then work 24 seven on it with everything else. So it's just like, what are you prioritizing, basically? Man, that's a, such a great self-awareness conversation to to have with yourself and gabby i really commend you on one recognizing what you were learning in class was no longer applicable to today's world like that is and you doing something about it because a lot of people in the world they're just they're on autopilot and they're just cruising and they're like oh i'm going to this class because it's an easy class and i'm just here to get get a get a 4.0 and blah 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 but you saw something, you're like, hey, this is no longer valuable for my time. And then you went to pursue something that you thought was worthy of your time. And you prioritized yeah. it. And you actually went out and and acted in the face of fear. And you still did it. This is so cool, Gabby. I, I, I love this story. This is such a great story because someone's going to look at this and like, okay, 
someone because everybody has different roles in real estate and everyone's personality is different. Not everybody's meant to go out there and be capital raisers. Not everybody's meant to go out there and manage a construction site. Not everybody's meant to be a property manager or to be a community manager. Not everyone's suited for that. What kind of what kind, what do you think has made you successful as a community manager? Like what kind of personality traits or what kind of lessons have you learned that you can share with people that allowed you to be recognized as a strong team member? Because if you weren't strong, you would have never became a community manager. Give us some give us some thoughts on that one. I think for me, like one of like my best traits is like if I if somebody gives me like a guidebook of like, hey, like this is how like the successful community managers do it. Like you should, you know, stick close to these people or like listen to them. I learn best off of like kind of like repeating somebody else's behaviors. Granted, like now because I'm like in the community manager role, I think for about like seven months now, I'm starting to be like, okay, now I need to create my own like um, tasks that people need to start uh, like Sorry, I'm like losing my train of thought. That people need to start doing as well. It's not just like what works best for other people. It's like, okay, what works best for them and what works best for me? And then like combining both of them at the same time to make it just sufficient. Um, so I'm just really good at that. I'm also just really good at like listening to people. At the end of the day, like a lot of people just want to be heard. Um, they're, you know, like sometimes like issues that they have in their homes. It could just be like, the tip of the iceberg, like with so many other things happening in their lives. So as long as, you know, we're hearing them and like actually doing something about an issue that they have, I think that's all that really matters. Um, I am also a crazy email person. I don't leave any email unread or unanswered and I will try to get it down to zero. Well, I'll leave two on there, but it would be like, old emails from people saying like, Oh, like Gabby, like, thank you so much for what you did. Or like that, like, Oh, like great job. Because then at the end of the day, no matter how stressful of a day I had, if I can clear my inbox and get to those two emails, then I can understand like, you know, like one, I'm not a bad person. Um, regardless if, you know, not everyone's going to be happy, but like, it makes me feel good. And sometimes I need somebody to be like, good job. You know, like you're doing great. So to have that there written, just a, a reminder for me daily. Oh, man. For everyone that's listening right now, I hope they rewind that that segment right there because not only is that a nugget for, for yourself, for your own mental health, but it's also great for your team members to be part of. If you're running a team, you're an entrepreneur, and you're trying to build a team, giving that little piece of advice to your team, like what Gabby just said, to keep them not just motivated, but also to help remind them like, hey, every day is going to be filled with problems, especially if you're managing an entire building with hundreds of units, there's probably going to be a toilet that gets broken or something that needs to get fixed and someone's not going to be happy about it. <laughs> but how do you stay positive despite all of that? And Gabby just gave you the best hint. Well, first of all, props on you on keeping your email to zero because that's really, really hard for me with the amount of emails I get. So I know yeah. how challenging that is. So that's how I know you're on top of your stuff, Gabby, when yeah. you just told me that little bit of detail. But saving those positive emails for the end of the day, man, that just sets you off in the right mood when you go home and you're de-stressing on your commute home. That's so important. Please, if you guys are listening right now, like, please make that a habit. 
please implement that. If if there's anything else, if there's nothing else you take from this one, this podcast, please take that one because I started implementing that when I after I talked to Gabby, and my mental health has been tremendously better. So thank you so much for that, Gabby. Thank you so much for sharing that. Tip. <laughs> I try because I think so many of us just deal with so much not just with work, but life in general. So it's good to be reminded that like, hey, like what you're doing is to help people. You're not, you know, you're not putting anyone down. You're not hurting anyone else. What you're doing is just trying to get by essentially and make it. And you make it so simple. It's like, guys, just listen to people. If you just listen and help them feel heard, like I run Airbnbs. Every single time a guest complains, I try to address it right away. Yeah. Whenever you have issues with your tenants and you want your vacancy expenses to be lower, you should take care of that. You should make sure they have a great experience. That truly, truly does affect your bottom line. If they don't have a great experience, they're going to move out. Exactly. <laughs> uh, well, Gabby, I want to bring this conversation into... Now, let's talk a little bit about managing all these assets. And yeah. particularly when you're overseeing like hundreds and hundreds of units like what does your day-to-day even look like just give us a very rough level like are you in there just answering emails every day are you dealing with problems like what what does that day-to-day look like for you so it's a little bit of everything um i try to be as involved as much as i can just to try to take some um off of like my other team members if that's maintenance uh, or leasing um so yes i answer emails but I try to walk around the property and just making sure that like it looks good. The curb appeal looks um, well and everything's getting taken care of. And also seeing like talking with the concierge, seeing if there's any issues um, that need to be resolved that happen like over the night. Um, so I'll do that. I'll pay bills. Um, I've been in a lot of meetings recently. So just getting that information from the meetings and then relaying it to team members of things that are going on within the property. Um, I do a lot of resident communications. So sending out mass emails. Um, If there's any issues, um, the one that usually addresses it, um, or if there are minor issues, then we usually have like my leasing consultant address it. And then it'll come up to me once it gets to a certain point um, to kind of like help out with the amount um, of things that I have to do. Um, so I feel like I tried the other day to kind of write down everything that, um, I do just so I can like schedule my day out a little bit more. Cause I like things very scheduled. And then I realized that like, that you can't put a cap on like, Oh, like this is what I do. And this is the only thing I do. I will do whatever I need to do. Um, whatever helps the company, like that's kind of where I'm at. And that makes so much sense on why you're successful because you are adaptive, you are a problem solver, and whenever things come up, you just try to take a structured approach, but also a humane approach whenever solving any problems. Um, Well, give us a sense of, and maybe I want to give you a little bit of context for where this question comes from. Um, one, One of the goals for this podcast is we're trying to dispel the stigma associated with affordable housing, which means that sometimes folks think affordable housing, they think Section 8, and for some reason in the media, there's been the stigma that all affordable housing tenants are just guns, drugs, drama, all the negativity around it. 
give us a sense of one um what sort of po percentage or population of your residents are voucher holders and let's just go with that stigma first like have you seen any of these issues kind of pop up based on your experience so far so i don't think i can share the exact amount um no problem I, you know honestly that's fine no uh, worries but i know that you know I, i've dealt with so many at multiple different properties and just like every other resident they still have to do a background check um income verification check and a credit check um you know just due to fair housing regulations everything's the same i think just their process is a little bit more extensive because so many things have to get approved through um you know the housing authorities that they use but you know they're just a resident like everyone else nothing's different <laughs> except like where we're getting most of the money from um i think that's a lot one of the things people like don't really understand it's because those residents go through so much just to be in the building that you know like to have that and have people also judging them it's just not fair because to me like that makes me think about like the immigrant process, that's kind of like what I relate it to because a lot of immigrants go through, like me, myself, I've gone through so many steps to become a citizen that even when you do, it's like, oh, like, but you weren't really born here. And it's like, but like I did just as much, if not a little bit more to be welcomed into the country. So that's what I considered. I like look at it as. That is such a good point. And and complete and for well help explain to people like what what do folks with vouchers typically have to go through on housing authority side and then ultimately to apply for for an apartment with you so to apply for an apartment they would do it just like any other applicant through the website um and then they would just let like somebody from our team know like hey like i have a voucher and then we would only get um so once they come to us, that usually means that they've already been selected by a housing authority. Like, hey, like you're selected, we'll pay for your voucher. And then it depends on the area that they're at. Sorry, I can't even speak. That they are going to be renting at, the voucher will cover different amounts, if I'm not mistaken. It's not the same everywhere. Excuse me. But when, if they go, once they go to the housing authority first, they have to submit like all the bank documents, um, basically everything in your name that you have as an asset, they're going to want to know. Granted, I think some housing authorities are a little bit different than others. Um, but from the ones that I've worked with, it's most likely like they're getting a lot of information just to make sure that they actually are in need of affordable housing um, because they want to make sure that the people that they are giving these vouchers to actually need it um, since there, there always are going to be some people that abuse the system. Um, so once they get to us, it's like they've already gone through the harder process. And then now it's just like scheduling um, the move-in date. And most housing, housing authorities will also like to inspect the apartment before. Um, so they just want to make sure that the apartment is livable. They're not going to give somebody a voucher and like, hey, like, yeah, just choose what you want. They're going to make sure that the apartment is in pristine condition and that 
it's going to be a good place for the tenant to live in because they also understand like, hey, like we're giving affordable housing to somebody that needs it. That doesn't mean that the landlord gets to take advantage and not take care of that apartment. We have to take care of all of apartments. They just have to inspect that one before they're able to sign like a contract with us to say that they approve the voucher for us. That's really interesting. So thank you for sharing those details about the screening process because man, when I heard that, it's almost as if they are going through like a loan application <laughs> to buy a place to produce that many forms of asset verification. Yeah. That's a lot of administrative work. Wow. I think it's because so many people have taken advantage of in the past um, that I think everything just want, every company just wants to be secure. And the, granted, mm -hmm. this is like, to the housing authorities. Maybe somehow the housing authorities are a little bit different depending on the city or state. But from my experience with them, they've all been like this more or less. Okay. Well, after they get their voucher, they get approved by the housing authority, then they now have the ability or maybe I would even call it like the confidence to go apply for an apartment within one of your buildings, Gabby. Mm -hmm. And from that point onwards, once they, once you guys do your fear your screening criteria based on fair housing laws. What what sort of step happens next? Do you approve the tenant and then you get someone to check the apartment to make sure like you're going through the housing authority's checklist for the inspection? Tell us a little bit more about that process. Like yeah. if someone is thinking about, hey, I want to manage a section eight property, what sort of steps is sort of best practice and how do I get my unit ready for section eight inspection? So as soon as they apply um, and you know that they're a voucher holder and like, you know, that you've gotten the sufficient evidence, not evidence, um, just the paperwork that we need on our end for our verifications, what we should start reaching out to the housing authorities to schedule the inspection. And then your job is just to ensure like every other apartment it's completed within a set time frame. Um, the only difference is instead of it being completed for move-in, you're going to get that apartment completed for the inspection. And then, of course, you're going to re-clean it um, prior to the resident moving in and just make sure everything's still in perfect condition. Um, but basically, your goal is to be friends with the housing authorities. You want to know who to contact. Um, they get bombarded with emails and calls daily from hundreds, if not thousands of people like People checking on like their housing, their voucher status or landlords or other recipients like for renewals and things like that. So you want to make sure that you know who to contact and also understand that their job is a little bit more difficult than ours in a way that they're constantly just dealing with this. Um, so you also have to give them a little bit of leeway of being like, okay, like if, if I don't hear from them in two business days, then I'll, I'll reach back out. Don't bombard them with emails every single day because um, they're not going to like you and you're probably not going to get an answer that uh, quickly. For me personally, like I will go through my emails, like what came way before than what comes immediately. Um, granted, if I see it's an emergency, I'll answer that. But that's how I think most people look at their emails. So just be considerate uh, of their time, be their friends, and also make sure that you understand the process in full so that like you're not waiting for a certain step that hasn't even happened yet because a first step wasn't completed. So just make sure you follow the process. 
Wow. So yeah, definitely master your process because you you definitely don't want to schedule an inspection and then have the inspector or or fail for some weird reason and yes. have the inspector <laughs> needing to come back out, right? That's hard. And maybe Gabby, just to give people a general sense of timeline, like in your area, what how does it typically take to schedule an inspection and, and get an inspection completed? So I feel like it's taken more like a more than a week, up to two weeks. Um, but granted, like if they're short staffed or if there are a lot of things going on, it, I'm pretty sure it can take up to four weeks. Um, so you have to be prepared. You also have to understand too, um, some housing authorities will prefer for you to start a lease at the first of a month. So you have to also come to terms like maybe you're going to have an apartment vacant for a whole month until it actually you know, gets move in and the voucher um, and the payment from the resident come in. Um, so you just, you truly just have to know the process and find a way to like work with it, not work against it. Yes. And that's such a great point, Gabby, that you just brought up for those of you that are, I mean, in case you're buying a, a single family home or a condo or a townhouse and you, you're trying to get it leased out right away. Well, if you miss the inspection, boom, that's two to four weeks. And then boom, if they need the lease to start on the first of each month, now you might be at a two-month holding period, not even including all of your past renovation timing. So when you listening right now, make sure you're underwriting for the right holding costs because you want to make sure you have enough reserves to take into account that extra month or two of mortgage payments, especially if you're not responsible for a large uh, apartment building like Gabby is. So something for you to figure out. Well, Gabby, what what sort of like things should people really pay attention to to make sure that they don't fail their inspection checklist? Like I've heard of from other guests before that like, hey, if the insect screen is is a little t torn up, that could cause a failure. But any sort of little hacks or advice that you might have for people to really look out for so that they don't fail their inspections? I think there's not one thing in general that you need to look out for. I think you just have to make sure that the apartment's perfect. Um, you basically want it to be like, what would you be giving it to your new resident? That's the condition you want the inspector to see. Um, you don't want them to see like, hey, like we use the thermostat for this um, from this apartment at another apartment because it stopped working. You don't want that. Uh, you truly want to make sure it's move-in ready and that you have everything up to date. Like I know in Boston, like we're required to have um, water submeter um, reports because we have our residents pay for water and sewer. So for certain cities and states, you might re be required to have additional paperwork on site for them to verify certain things. I think it's just really going to depend where you're doing it. Um, and again, the city, because even though you do it in a certain state, it's like every other city is like, oh, well, you do this in this city and do that in that city. So you truly have to master the process. And like, I feel like if you know the process and you know who to contact and are able to get in contact with, there really shouldn't be any issue. Um, and if you don't know the process, hire somebody that does. <laughs> Oh, people are going to start blowing you up, but Gabby, that's for sure. Uh, they're like, hey, I'm going to go through an inspection. But I think you raised probably the most important point. And it, and it was 
make sure you're being friendly with the city staff because they are probably understaffed, overworked, and inundated with huge amounts of volumes of requests from everybody. And if you are able to be the person that makes their jobs easier, and most importantly, thank them for their job and for yeah. their assistance with everything, then naturally people generally like to work and help people that they know and like. It's just very common sense uh, for people to really pay attention to. Uh, so yeah, Danny, uh, <laughs> I know. Thank you so much. <laughs> it's it's so common sense, but sometimes we all need to be reminded a little bit about yeah. just how to be a good, kind human being. I mean, this is why we got into affordable housing. This is why we want to help people. Um, yeah. Well, Gabby, we're getting to a point of this podcast now, and I, I want to ask you a question that I typically ask every guest on the podcast. Why, why do you think affordable housing, particularly the lack of supply of affordable housing, is so hard to solve for? I think... I feel like this is a difficult question, if I'm being honest. I think it's because there's not enough knowledge out there. Um, I think there's a stigma that every time somebody's like, oh, affordable housing, somebody automatically assumes like, oh, like I'm going to get paid less for more work. And it's not like that. Granted, there's going to be more work, but there's always more work with anything you do. Um, if you really look for it you'll have more work so it's just like making sure that people actually understand the process of affordable housing and understand that it's really there to supply people that need homes with homes like you got to think about the screening process that they already go through with the housing authorities they're not just giving it to just anyone like you're really privileged i mean maybe that's the wrong word to say it's not that like you're privileged for getting a voucher. It's just, it's so hard to do so um, that like, there's just not enough information for people to actually understand it. Um, sorry, I'm just going in circles now. I, I lost my train no, of thought. No, like, you're good, way. Gabby. You're good, Gabby, <laughs> um, because this is, this is a hard problem to solve. And this is yeah. why I ask this question to everybody. Because every knowledge piece. I think that's a huge piece. I think you're yeah. absolutely right on that, Gabby. Because a lot you of just people, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> You're good. Well, I, I was just thinking this lack of knowledge, not only is there a lack of knowledge, but there's also a language barrier for sometimes for folks. You just talked about how lengthy the application process was. I think I mentioned to you when my mom was waiting for her affordable housing unit. I mean, she waited like three and a half years to get into yeah. a harm building. When I lived in that same building, it was seven years. And at some point, they stopped taking applications for the wait list. And now here where I'm in San Diego is 12 to 15 years. That's a really, really long time. <laughs> There's wait lists like everywhere that I've like inquired. Because if we don't have like affordable housing or if it's pulled up at like our building, I will always like reach out to like our sister properties or like other buildings. Like, hey, like I have somebody who's really interested um, can they also be put on your waiting list too? And it's like two years to like 10. So it's just like, there's not enough of affordable apartments generally. And there's also not enough knowledge. So without that knowledge, not a lot of people are like, Hey, like, yeah, like I want to build an affordable apartment because they don't understand all the great benefits it adds. 
because sometimes people are very, you know, money hungry. And like, I get it. You know, we all want to be, to make money and have a better life for ourselves. But like, you also have to understand that there's so many people that need help and you can still make money helping people. It's not like you don't have to choose one or the other. You can do both. Um, just have to know how to, because <laughs> there are programs out there to help like a landlord too with like creating affordable housing. So knowledge truly is the key in all of this. <laughs> and I'm so glad you said that because this is this is why we have this podcast. And Gabby, I can't thank you enough for coming on and really pulling back the curtains behind what an operation might look like at a very large apartment building how a large apartment building can even take in voucher holders. Cause that's not something you typically think about when you see a luxury class, a apartment building, you're like, Oh, there's some affordable housing tenants in there. And you really can't tell because they're not out there causing trouble. No, they're just humans. They're like yes. every other resident. There's no, like, it's not like I see somebody I'm like, Hey, like I know they're an affordable resident. Like I don't, I don't see difference because to me, like, at the end of the day, like my job is to help all residents not be like, oh, like this one's an affordable resident. This one's not like it doesn't matter. Like it really doesn't. If they have an issue in their home, I'm going to help them regardless. If they have an issue anywhere in the building, I'm going to help them. So it's not like I think people just get stuck on that stigma and think like, oh, like they look a certain way or they act a certain way and they don't. Thank you so much for dispelling that stigma. And I think I mentioned to you before, Gabby, like this is probably, uh, I, I would say this is probably one of the biggest fights that, that I'm fighting uh, with this podcast. It's because I think if we can get over that first stigma, then almost our kids or the next generation can focus on a different problem because yeah. if we can get the knowledge out, which is, which is tremendously helpful with all the information that you shared today. And we can dispel some of these stigmas that these are just normal folks who needed a solid launching pad to get back on their feet and put their kids in a safe neighborhood with a good roof over their heads. Yeah. And like, it also gives them a path to find a way out of affordable housing. Cause that's one thing a lot of people don't really realize. It's not like people are going there and they're like, they're like, Hey, like I'm going to spend here forever you'd mix that with around people that are doing a little bit better, you're going to motivate them to like, Hey, like I'm going to do a little bit better. I'm able to do a little bit better because they also get, you know, they put themselves down too because of the stigma that everyone has about them. And it's just, it's just not fair. Sorry. I went on a little rant. Oh, that's okay. That's completely okay. Yeah. This is why we have this podcast. It's, we have to share these perspectives and most importantly, I want to call out the point that you make. You can help people and make money at the same time. Yes. You can absolutely do that. And I think what's the saying is like, Hey, if you love what you do, you don't feel like you're working or you never had to work again another day in your life. And this is so impactful what you're doing, Gabby. And I can't thank you enough again, because seriously, without, People like you, I would have never had the home I grew up in. And I cannot thank you enough. And I can't imagine what what life would have been like if no one helped my mom, if no one gave us the home that we grew up in. So thank you so much, Gabby. I so, so appreciate what you're doing. You're very welcome. <laughs> well, Gabby, hey, what? where can people find out a little bit more about you? And where can they contact you? Let's see. Um, they can look at my Instagram. 
it's just Gabby, G-A-B-B-Y. Hold on, I, I changed it recently. <laughs> and, and why then, are you looking? Uh, yeah, go ahead. Well, why are you looking that up too? I was gonna say Gabby is part of one of the largest networking real estate groups in Boston. So make sure you guys follow that one. Gabby, I'll let you drop the IG handle for that. Perfect. So for that, that one's easy. It's Blueprint Boston. Um, so it has all of our updates of our monthly um, networking events. We try to do some big ones. And then we also have some smaller, um, more private events as well. And then for my email um, handle, it's just Gabby Silva. So it's G-A-B-B-Y-S-I-L-B-A-A-A underscore. <laughs> um, there are a lot of Gabby Silvas, unfortunately. So I had to be very creative with that. Well, make sure all of you follow Gabby and make sure you follow at Blueprint Boston. I've been to a few of their events and they do hands down throw amazing networking events with very, very high caliber real estate professionals in the Boston area and, and frankly, covering the New England area. So please make sure you check them out. And Gabby, any other lasting advice or last advice you, you have for the audience? That's it. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much, Gabby, for coming on today. And we cannot wait to hear more about the developments that you and Gabe have going on. And I can't wait to have you guys back on in six, 12 months from now. Cause I think you guys are going to blow this thing up. This is going to be amazing to watch. We have to. <laughs> All <laughs> right. <gonna> <laughs> and we are out.